Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of The Toolkit. My guest today, uh, cinematographer and director Reed Morano. Uh, Reed was one, of, is one of the, was, and I guess supposedly still is, one of the better DPs working in independent film, uh, movies like uh, Frozen River, Kill Your Darlings, and then made her uh, directorial debut with Meadowland. Just finished shooting her second feature, which maybe we'll have time to talk about. But the project that everybody's talking about, and the reason Reed's here today, is The Handmaid's Tale, in which she was executive producer, and then, of course, directed the first three episodes. So thank you for being here, Reed. Thank you for having me. I guess right off the bat, you know, you just finished shooting a second feature. Um, In that sense of how much different... I mean, how does that vary compared to doing three episodes, being doing the first three episodes of a story that you obviously were very passionate about from a directing standpoint versus making your own movie? How different are those processes in terms of being the director on a TV show for the, to get it started versus, I, I would imagine your new film, like we would say Meadowland, I would say that's a Reed Murano film. You know, right. how, is, how is that process even just different from a, as a director? Well... I mean, being that it was my first time making a pilot, you know, as a director, I've definitely shot them as a DP, and so I know the process from that standpoint, but um, it was different because I just didn't know how, when you make your own movie, you go in with the idea, typically, of how far I'm going to take this, you know you're going to take it where you want to take it, because creatively you have ownership over that, and when you do something with a you know, you have a studio and a network and a showrunner and pr- all these producers, and there's a lot of people above you, uh, more so than on an indie feature, for example, you are in a different position as a pilot director than you are on a, as a director of feature because you're not the last word, really. The buck doesn't stop with you. It's like even, um, you know, that would be the, the showrunner, really, and, and then people still could potentially override a showrunner unless, you know, if they really wanted to. Um, So the difference for me was, do I go into it naive and treat it just like I would a movie and just do everything the exact way that I would do it as as if it were a Reed Morano film? Mm -hmm. Is that bad? Should I? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, should I do it the exact way I would do it as if it was a Reed Morano film or, you know, I was the, you know, sole sort of person everyone was looking to for direction or do I err on the side of what I think is right for TV and be a little bit safer and not try like risky or wild things because it's because of what I know about TV and because I know there's that many cooks in the kitchen mm-hmm. and and also because the the thing is is that you have <coughs> an opportunity to make a statement and show a point of view and so that there is like a little bit more of a battle in in your in yourself of like okay am I gonna go full force you know on my vision Mm -hmm. or am I gonna like water things down because that's what because like maybe the people above me are not as like risky as I am Mm -hmm. so uh for me it was I actually I probably did think that from time to time, but I now that I look back on it, I feel like everything I did, I did it the way that I wanted to do it on mm-hmm. the TV show because I presented them 
with what I thought it would be beforehand. And they were all my particular read ideas and they all were into it. And then, the, you know, there would be other things that they would ask about and point out that were kind of like, oh, we got to make sure that it has scope. We got to make sure it has scope. That was like one of the big Cause things. Because I mean, part of this, and I, I think this is probably new to you, is also the sense that they're thinking I got about the arcing this thing out. <clears throat> they're thinking about like where this is going to land and also what is being established here because it's got to continue and how that's going to build and develop, right? Yeah, I mean, I think also they wanted the show to not be, you know, they're concerned because it's me too. So they're like, we don't want this to feel like a depressing, dark indie movie because mm-hmm. that's all they had seen that I had directed was Meadowland, which is like a very dark movie. And yes, mm-hmm. it's an indie film. But um, they were, I think, you know, they there were just things where they were like, they obviously had faith in me if they hired me, but they were like, just make sure that it has scope and just make sure that we know the difference between, you know, we know when we're in a flashback. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you basically have a lot of people sort of standing over you saying, just make sure of this, just make sure of that. And I imagine it's what, it's a, similar to what it might be like to direct a studio feature in the sense that, you have the studio kind of looking, you know, over your shoulder all the time and um, saying that you have to fulfill certain requirements. So, you know, I had them watching over me, but at the same time, I still just did what I kind of wanted to do, Mm -hmm. which was, I think, because I hadn't, um, because I couldn't help it, because I knew I was coming in from the ground up on the show, Mm -hmm. so I knew that I didn't have to follow some other model because there wasn't one yet and so I thought well why not do it the way I want to do it and so I did and what was cool is that the people above me did empower me a bit to do that you know they didn't say like go crazy and they all seemed a little more conservative than me but at the same time they didn't like you know when I did crazy edit you know like of scenes where you know maybe I put music they weren't expecting or um you know, shot it in a, in a, you know, covered it in a way that was maybe a little unorthodox for um, a TV show. They, nobody said anything, you know, there were no like red flags when people were watching dailies and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And then, and we even, you know, I shared scenes early on the pilot because we couldn't shoot the entire pilot, you know, right off the bat, we couldn't shoot the entire pilot because the opening of the pilot takes place in the winter. Oh, of course. So, so, okay. All right. So I had to wait. The other thing is I didn't find out about that having to be winter until about three weeks before we started shooting because we got the outline for episode seven three weeks before I started shooting episode one and all of a sudden we realized episode seven was completely tied into the opening flashback of episode one and I was like okay so I know what that means that means now I have to wait until winter to shoot my my opening of my pilot and you really your pilot is your first chance to prove to everyone that you're working for, you know, it's your first chance to prove that you know what you're doing and you can form a show. And now you're putting, giving them a pilot with the whole beginning scene missing. And it's like, so everything was like working against me. And I was just like, this is so unfair. But um, I, you know, I think in a way it was helpful because we, we actually, I had to give them, I got longer to give them the pilot and then you know, when in you the say edit, that, do you mean do you mean you you got a cut first? Is that what yeah. is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. So they basically the way it works is they'll give me a director's cut, then it goes to the showrunner and the producer, and then they do their own cut, 
after mine. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets shown to the studio okay. and the network, which is a little bit upsetting because if you're not creatively in line with your producer and your showrunner, then they're seeing something completely different than your vision possibly. Mm -hmm. Or maybe missing a lot of the original choices you made. In the case, in this case, I was lucky because Bruce and Warren, Bruce, my showrunner, and, and Warren Littlefield, the producer, they were mostly creatively in line and were very excited about what I did. And so when they made changes, they were very minimal, um, if at all. And, you know, so that was helpful. And, and also what was helpful was because I was in an EP on the first three episodes, I was able to stay involved and I got Bruce and Warren to let me look at their cuts and give them notes on the cuts before they went to the network in the studio. Same editor? Uh, yeah, same editor. Well, no, it was three. I had three editors, actually, which is insane. So some, I had an editor, Julian. Did you have an episode in each bay? Uh, pretty, pretty much. Well, what happened is Julian Clark edited most of the pilot. Mm -hmm. Then he had to leave to go to another show. So he actually helped. Julian Clark is like one of the un unsung heroes of Handmaid's Tale because he and I really came up with what the narrative language of Handmaid's Tale is from a visual standpoint, from a, you know, an editorial standpoint, because he was the first editor. Mm -hmm. And um, he and I, you know, we talked before we st I started shooting and I told him I was going to want to do some surreal stuff and I wanted to do weird stuff with sound and I kind of empowered him and tried to inspire him. And so he and I, what was great is he, and rather than doing his own edit, you know, of it before his own assembly and not showing me anything until that was done, because we had such a limited amount of time, he was showing me cuts of things as he went. So he was very um, inclusive. And that gives you a chance to react and kind of and shape as you go versus like... This having is to reshape the whole thing at the no. end or something. Yeah, so he was really helpful. And also, you know, it was like, really, it was like he and I making it weird. Mm. You know, like we were the ones who first, you know, did that together. And, and he, he did a lot of amazing stuff when he came in and saw it and, and um, it was very inspiring to me. So. You know, he was super important to the process. Then we have two other, so he had to leave, which was upsetting to me because I was like, he's the one who knows the show, you know, and we hadn't finished the pilot yet. We still didn't have the opening. So he, um, he left and then uh, I had Chris Donaldson who ep edited episode two, mm -hmm. and then Wendy Hallam Martin who was gonna finish the pilot and then do episode three for me. Um, so then I had to like re, sort of, you know, I mean, luckily they had most of the pilot to look at to get on mm -hmm. the page, but then I had to work with them on that, and they were great. They, you know, and obviously each editor is very different, but they all managed to kind of embrace what it was and, and then interpret it in their own way, and, and also each bring their own individual strengths to it. So, and then it was like sort of like the way, same way you do when you're working with actors, you had to, I had to kind of play to each of the editor's strengths, and, and like, you know, because of that, sometimes tonally in the edit, the the episodes feel very different because it's three different people editing it. But you can sense, you can sense it. I can sense it. But then I, we all kind of eventually kind of melded together once everybody figured it out. And to be fair, it was like you know, two was Chris's first episode and three was Wendy's. And I actually do feel like 
you know, I actually grew, I loved the pilot the most at first, but then I loved two, and then I loved, <laughs> in the end, then I loved three more. And it's like, I actually don't love like one more than the other. They all make me, I'm all, I'm all, I'm happy with all of them, and I'm also equally annoyed with things in all of them. So it's like no special treatment, but everybody was great, and I totally just went off track on that question. No, 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 Well, I mean, because I feel like there's something, I mean, this idea that a director um, uh, would come in and uh, establish a, a look and, and a language for a show, I mean, that's something that, and, and you've shot shows that are like that, I mean, yeah. um, and, and that's something that um, has been done in TV for, for a while. But there's something I feel that's like a little bit hybrid here and a little bit, that, I mean, what's really curious to me about, about your work on the show is that you did three. And there's also this element of um, you were adventurous. Like, I mean, this is in the sense of like, part of this is like, you have to figure out how, how, how you're gonna do the subjectivity of offered. You have to figure out what the language is between the, the present world and the, the future. And so like, there's certain things that you have to establish because that's a template. And I think that's how we often think about directors is, is they give it a look and a template for TV. But in, in digesting those first three episodes and seeing how you were doing it, and maybe this is just me, but I was very much connecting uh, with you as a storyteller, with you as, like, as a personal voice in this, and yet what you're establishing is something that has to be continued. So there's this weird thing, you know, it's like Fincher yeah. could come in and it's like, okay, I'm gonna give this Fincher look to House of Cards, go. Yeah. You know, but like there's something here to me, and, and maybe it's the story itself and how personal it feels, or maybe it is the fact that although there was rules to this world that you established and visually, there was, there's also something that felt very tactile and personal. And so this is a weird project in that sense to where it feels like this kind of hybrid between maybe what you would do on... If it had been a movie or if something. If it had been a movie yeah. versus like, I, I have to like, I have a job of establishing, translating these great writers work into how this show is gonna work. Is yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I like, obviously that's amazing that you're saying that, but I think you're right because like how I was saying before, I might be unsure how far I could push it because it's TV, but I didn't, I think there were moments where I felt worried about that and then there were other moments where I was just, I mean, I think what I actually did, what I worried about was different than what I actually did and I think I did, you know, nine times out of ten, I pushed it as far as I would push it. You know, had it been a feature. Could you? Could you? Could you? I, I, I think I know what you're saying, but in terms of pushing it, could you give an example of something where? Um, well, I mean, I guess in terms of pushing it, I guess it, it, the pu a lot of the pushing it came later in um, more in like the edit editorial process because you know that's where you make bold choices but even in for example in episode three I really started to get like experimental because I did I mean there's this one scene which I still can't believe I did it because it's so weird that I did this but it was the scene it's a scene where Alfred comes in and immediately um, you know Rita the Martha is attending to her very very you know giving her a ton of attention and you know makes her a lunch and sits her down at the table and then eventually Serena Joy comes in and is there, basically they think she's pregnant. And, um, and I, when I framed up the uh, master shot for that, I thought, this is such a great shot, but then uh, I had always planned to get coverage. That was part of my plan. But they, as they were doing it, they were all so good and there was so, something so funny about 
just watching the scene unfold in this wide shot that um, and sort of disturbing that you couldn't escape to a you know a cut to cut away from anything you just had to just watch her being surrounded and also I just thought it was very humorous that she was so small in her chair and then both of them were like looming over her on either side and I just sort of like as we shot this as we did take after take I started to think like I just kept doing more takes and my my AD was like what's going on like we we're not gonna have time for the coverage and I was like I think I'm just I think I'm gonna just only do this shot <laughs> and he was like you are and I was like yeah and then which is a very which I think a lot of directors struggle with that go to TV no matter how adventurous they are because of the sense that like there's an expectation of standard coverage that you're gonna give the options of the close-up yeah. the wide and the and you, you know, know and I would never recommend to never to just get one angle mm -hmm. and I didn't actually in that scene I at the end I just to cover my ass I did a complete 180, like a total reverse of the scene. So mm -hmm. just behind her back at the table. So that if I ever needed a get out of jail free card, I could just flip to the other side and I would see, you know, Serena Joy and Rita's faces facing me. So basically like right behind her mm -hmm. at the table. So I did get like a couple takes of that at the end because I had enough time to do it. But um, I, we didn't use it really. We, I think we use it like when she comes in and then she sits down mm -hmm. and we're in that shot. And um, but anyway, everybody was like, "Oh my God, it's so crazy! We're just doing that one shot." And so I think that's what I mean by like I did by by a three. I was really bold and just doing whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. And like you know, even the scene where um, off Glenn is in the van, and you know she, the van backs up to the crane, and then they take the Martha out, and she goes to get hung. The camera that particular shot too was also just one shot, and it was our first take. Because everything that was happened in the first take, pretty much, we had a couple false starts, but basically, once we got that first full take, that's the one that's in the show. But magical things happened, like when she went to go. You know, we had an actress who played the Martha who was willing to do the stunt herself, and so when she went to go get hung, weirdly, this insane flock of birds started like circling the crane, and we were like, "What the fuck is <laughs> happening?" Like Colin and I looked at each other, like holy shit, like this is like insane and magical. And so we ended up using that take. So we only did two takes of that. And that's a whole scene. Um, and I was shooting another angle outside that I just knew I was never gonna use, but I had another camera out there mm -hmm. and I was like, fuck it, let's just get this other angle of it. And I, but I never planned to use it. But I mean, just so you, cause you kind of do have to like make sure you have something somewhere. But, um, and then just in the music, you know, like musically and sound design wise, you know, it's like we put in a lot of music cues that are a little unorthodox and also some that were, do you know, there was no, I wasn't sure where we were going to go with music in Handmaid's Tale because I, I always felt like it was mostly going to be score and then the only time you were going to hear source music that was modern would be in um, flashbacks. And then mm -hmm. I always said, you know, in my lookbook and my presentation to them, like the the source music and the flashbacks were gonna be what jars you out of Gilead because you know, like some kind of hardcore hip hop song or something that you never hear in Gilead. And then, um, but what ended up happening is, is just like as we were shooting, it occurred to me so much of what I was motivating the camera and the storytelling from was being, putting myself in Alfred's head with Lizzie and just thinking like, what's she thinking right now? And try to see everything the way she sees it with our camera. Well, let's talk about that because that's one thing that you do need to establish, which I think is probably the, in terms of like thinking about establishing this world, that subjectivity as it as it relates to the Elizabeth Moss character, in that sense of like you have a, you have 
um, a pretty meaty voiceover. And you also have this sense of, uh, you know, how are you going to shoot her? How are you going to have this sense? Um, it, it, in, a, in a very movie sense, you need to be placed in her world yeah. rather than this being a series of characters. And so, I mean, what I noticed was some very distinct choices. But I mean, I think that's probably one of those things that beyond your three episodes that you're really charged with, like, establishing of, like, how... How, How are she? we going to enter into her world visually and and kind of you know separate this time when we're like in her head and, and versus like kind of like watching her? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was POV. You know, I just said it's like a POV show. You know, and Bru and that's something that like even from the first conversations I had with Bruce and Warren. I was like, it's a POV story because that's how Margaret wrote it. So that's what she asked for in and, that very standard sense of she looks we see what she sees and we, we do reaction shots that kind of like very is that is that what you mean by yeah like a, well I mean I guess like in the in the story we're in her head in the mm -hmm. book we're in her head and in the script we're in her head because it's so much we're hearing her voiceover so for me and that's what's so hard about these books is yeah that, is that if they're they're placing you so that's what a book can do mm -hmm. is like get you all those internal, internal thoughts, thoughts and you yeah. have to and obviously they chose to use the device with the voiceover but you also have to like kind of emotionally get there with your camera exactly too. you can't just like put a voiceover over any old shot and make and then it's like telling us what we need to know also if a voiceover is so long you have to be able to sustain it for an audience so you need to make sure that the, the shots are telling an interesting story as well like it's not just it's not just B-roll to what she's talking about. It's got to add like another layer of meaning or something. Yeah, like yeah. It can't just be like, you can't phone it in basically. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit, you have, you do have to think. And it does take some some thought to think about how you're going to cover the scenes, not just the voiceover scenes, but the flashback scenes too, because it's all about thinking, putting yourself in her head and thinking about the things she's remembering from that moment that are different from now or the things that she's seeing in that moment that she's focusing on. And so... That's the other thing I think why it like feels maybe personal too because it's sort of like uh, trying to put yourself inside a person's head and then how do you visualize that? And so you know one of the ways I always thought we would visualize it is be by putting the camera physically closer to her, number one for her close-ups, but like maybe on a wider lens because it feels a little more uncomfortable and sort of. Um, there's something a little bit unsettling about that, and I and it lets you get this. It lets you get that proximity. Yeah, but it also yeah. And I think that's what that it makes an audience member feel much closer to the person in an uncomfortable way. And like then when we cut to other people, they're very often a little bit farther away, like from her. Like we're always shooting them usually from where she is. Except when you know, obviously, I'm getting different sizes and, and going in tighter, but like. You know, so there are many scenes where it's like close on her, and then we'll cut to what she sees, and what she sees is oftentimes, it's the distance away from her. It would have been in the scene, and so sort of basically a POV, like you're saying, it's her, and then what she sees, and then to take it a step further, like when we were when we started shooting, I started to think about first place I thought about this was the salvaging, but like how was I going to shoot the salvaging because it's such a violent act. Mm. I mean, I didn't want to glorify the violence, but I also didn't want to... I, w I thought, like, how can I make this as scary as possible, but almost without showing anything? And um, that thought to me was, like, these women. If I look at these women mostly, that's what their faces look like when they're doing this to this guy and all the rage that they have and how kind of almost, like, just not, you know, 
not saying they are anymore. That's what isn't, you know, that's where... That's the a horrifying part. The violence, the violence is, is, is something, but to, to see them and, 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 and write that, I mean, that, that is such a powerful scene because there is that sense of we know how they feel inside, but to see externally how they are acting is, is a sense of just how warped or how that like that's actually where you feel like they're prison the most yeah. is, is just that that's how they have they, that's they the have only been. time they can express themselves yeah. and yeah so anyway I had this thought like well what if you know I shoot it very beautifully and impressionistically in slow motion and sun flares and just make it like really beautiful but the horror will be seeing their performances you know and um and, uh, you know, seeing the look on Offred's face when she's, like, just tearing this guy apart, which is going to be really scary because we haven't seen her like that. And she's just, like, supposed to be a regular girl, you know? All plus of plus it's Elizabeth Moss. Plus it's Elizabeth Moss. Which is, like, <coughs> is, 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 you know, yeah. she's the first daughter, you know? It's like, it's like she's, she's Peggy. It's, like, it's very, you it's, know... It's it, weird and it, crazy yeah, to see her yeah. like that. Yeah, and so, so that's one of the things where... So then the slow-mo kind of, like, opened up. It cracked another layer of, like, there was things I didn't think I would ever do. Uh, well, there were things I would, I would think, like, are, are sort of, like, red flags from a storytelling perspective, flashbacks, uh, voiceover, and shooting slow-mo. <laughs> All three of those things are three things I, would, I know that in my life I have said flashbacks suck, slow-mo sucks, voiceover is for losers who can't tell the story another way. So I, but for some reason in this experience, because of the way Margaret wrote the book, it was like permission to do all three. She, you know, not the slow, it, like her book has flashbacks and voiceovers. So that was right off the bat. You have, you want to tell the story that way. To be honest, um, obviously everyone knows this, but Elizabeth Moss is that good that you could take out the voiceover and I think it would still be I wanted effective. to ask you, I wanted to ask you that is that you can I, take out the voiceover and it still works however what because you could have gotten the did hum- you try that in the editing room at all yeah we took I mean well we definitely cut down the voiceover for sure like Bruce and I because we realized once just we so got, we could, Bruce Bruce Miller is, is the gentleman who wrote He's the writer, writer, writer and, and the showrunner. And then yeah. Warren Littlefield is, is someone who has who, who has overseen a lot of TV shows and kind of like yeah. is kind of like a, he's like a, the guru. Yeah. He's like like the ultimate producer of TV. So it's mm. like Warren, you know, it's like you bow down to Warren. I'm sorry, I just wanted to make sure that people had the context. So you, yeah, Bruce, so you yeah. and Bruce worked on the in the sense Bruce wrote so many. I mean, I know he's a team, but he wrote so many of these words and is like. Is, is adapting is adapting yeah. this book. So you you worked on like trimming down some of. I mean, when I did my cuts, I would cut out VO. Me and the editors, we would cut a lot of VO out that we felt was not necessary because, let's be honest, she's doing everything. She's telling us everything we need to do with her performance. There's nothing that we won't get from Lizzie Moss. But I also knew we can't get rid of the whole VO because. It's not my movie. That's one thing too. That, that has to be established because that's like if, if it's, not, it's not established in that that world is not that idea that we're going to be hearing from her. There are moments where you need it too, honestly, though, because like there are things about the world that Margaret has in her book that you are very hard to. It's it's hard without somebody saying it in a conversation. It's hard without really bad exposition to give the audience that information if they have not read The Handmaid's Tale, which I know. A lot of people who are watching the show have read the book, but a lot of people haven't. And like, you know, for example, when she's explain, you know, you can explain things about why Gilead is Gilead or, or you can explain certain rules of Gilead through the voiceover. So 
I think it's actually helpful. And you don't, luckily, the way that Bruce writes, he's never writing everything in a purely expositional way. Mm -hmm. He's writing the voiceover to be purposely kind of a little bit more um, giving you uh, sort of breadcrumbs. So he's not like always like just giving out all the information, which is great. The great thing about Bruce's writing, and which makes it easier to want to keep the voiceover in. And additionally, the voiceover is a great way to easily get some humor and lighten it. You know, lighten up the darkness of mm -hmm. what that world is. You, but you really could get that anyway because Lizzie's face. You know, her facial expression. She gives you everything, and it's never too much. It's always the right amount. And, so, um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I think it was fun to be able to play with those devices. And the slow-mo was just something that came when I was, you know, once I like sort of opened up that can of worms mm -hmm. for myself or opened up that Pandora's box of slow-mo, it started to be like every time when I was shooting a scene, it was never, it wasn't, I, I started shot, you know, I shot listed a lot, but I would be in a scene and I would just know I'm gonna do these shots slow-mo because it's from Offred's POV and it's what she's focusing on, or it's in her imagination. So, so anytime I was using slow mo, it's usually because it was it was something that I felt like she was. And you're feeling she, on the she day. Was, yeah, she was like glory, glorifying something in the moment. Like even that last scene, the last scene in episode two, where she walks out, and you know, in the script, it's just like okay, you know, Alfred uh, exits the house, walks past Nick, he's polishing the car. Um, and then goes to the gate, off Glen turns around, it's not off Glen, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's basically the essence of what the scene was. And I was like, okay, I don't, you know, Lizzie and I talked that morning, I was like, we can't do another scene with Nick polishing the car. We've already done so many, and you guys have a whole season to shoot. Like, I had to change it up a little. <laughs> so then I, so I changed up the blocking, and I had Nick come down the stairs and had her come out of the house, because I had this idea in my head because you know Lizzie and I talked about it and we were going back and forth about like okay well what just happened she just had the scrabble game with the commander so she's really as Lizzie put it feeling herself right now mm -hmm. and if there ever was like a positive moment in Gilead yet in the story this was it this is the first time she's actually like maybe kind of things are looking up in a way because she's got a little bit of an in with the commander she also has this weird flirtation going on with Nick so she's like feeling really good about herself so so I'm thinking she comes out the doors, and I'm just thinking from my perspective as the storyteller, well, I'm gonna shoot her in slow-mo, like a hero. And whatever she sees, she's seeing it in slow-mo because it's like this is her big moment to walk next to Nick, and they can feel the electricity with each other and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And you know, the moment when they walk next to each other, um, when I watched it, I thought, oh my God. And I was gonna shoot like her POV and like really draw it out. And uh, I thought, oh my God, this feels so much like high school. <laughs> and and then I was like, after they did that take, I was like, I was like, this totally feels like The Breakfast Club or something. And I was like, I should just put in that song from that in The <laughs> Breakfast Club. And I was like joking, kind of. And then I thought about it and I was like, no, I actually really <laughs> should do that. And at lunch, I called my editor, Chris, and I said, I told, I, I was like, you don't even have this footage yet because I literally just finished shooting it, but here's my idea you know, use Don't You Forget About Me, and, and it's all slow-mo, and then when she gets to the gate, and as soon as Off Glen turns around, cut the music out. And the way it landed, because of how Chris cut it perfectly, was um, the lyrics go, will you recognize me, and the music cuts out. When I saw it the first time, I was like, oh my god, I like was like crying and laughing. And, mm -hmm. and also then, you know, I was like at the end when she, 
really, you know, when she says, I am off Glenn, the, the music comes back in after she says, fuck. So it was, it, those are the kinds of, that's answering a lot of questions, but basically the slow-mo became like a way to tell the story and, and from her perspective and get into her head. And then also using that source music there, but not as source, but using it as score, I justified it because in that moment we're in her head. And um, it, it would be a song that, that June knew from before Gilead. So I just made up that rule, basically. And so, and what was cool is... In that sense that this is the future, but that the present that's in your movie, which is actually a flashback in your show, is, is kind of now. And so the idea is, is that yeah. she would know that song. She would know, like, you and I know that song. Right, she like, gonna, she would have grown up with The Breakfast uh, Club, so she would know yeah. that song. And so... Like that song, you know, she could come out of the house feeling that song in her head, you know? So that was the justification for that. I had to have like a reason why I did everything, and that was the reason. So, um, because what you're establishing has to be continued when you leave. Yeah, but I also didn't tell, you know, that's the thing. So, to go back to an earlier thing, you were asking about it being very personal and that, like, rather than like another TV show where you set up the visual rules and they're kind of like easy to follow, like once you realize what they are. There was no hard and fast rule about a lot of things in what I did. So sort of like, like a lot of the things I did were on gut instinct in the moment. So like there were some things that, you know, Colin, my DP, who's amazing and, and was just so, um, focused on, I have to, we have to make this the way that you're making it when you're gone. Because he, oh. stayed, he stayed on and shot everything. Yeah. And he was <laughs> He's just, like, I have to go work with other directors and make it. Yeah, he was so freaked out. And he was like, I just don't get why. He's like, they would have, he and the two operators, Mike, Mike Heathcote and Michael Carr, who are also awesome, they would have, they would place bets at a certain point, like when we were shooting episode two and three, what after they saw a blocking rehearsal with the actors, while they, I was blocking the actors and they watched the rehearsal, they would all make place bets on what, how I would cover the scene so that they could see if they were learning <laughs> what like was my motivation for, for, okay, now we're going handheld or okay, now we're gonna be on sticks, you mm -hmm. know, or this one's gonna be steady. And it was hard. They couldn't really figure it out all the time. You well, know? I, I talked to Colin and, um, cause I, I was curious, what it was, I mean, obviously you're an established cinematographer, and so I was wondering from his standpoint what, what that was like, and he, he actually was, you were focused on directing, that you had talked about the look, but that he was, he was, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was I stayed it, out of it. Yeah, it was, but the one thing he brought up that was really interesting, I, I bring it up now, is, is that, and he was totally cool with it, but um, this sense that, and I, I feel, and I'm getting this sense also listening to you talk about um, being on set and how you chose to direct, that you wanted to operate, which I listen to. Only the handheld stuff. By but the my way. instinct, though, is that there's something about the way that you direct and the way that you're talking about instinctive that there is something very immediate about looking through that lens and getting a feel for something. And that I don't know if this is because you came up through being a cinematographer or if this is just the way you think, but my sense is, is that. That is something that's very that's part not necessarily that you have to operate to direct, but that there's that there's something about how you work in that way. Yeah, yeah. It was it, Colin was very cool about that. I mean, I basically told him, "Look, I'm going to stay out of your way. I'm going to do what most normal. I'm going to treat you the way you want to be treated as a DP, probably better than you've been treated by most directors, because I know what it's like to be in his shoes." Mm -hmm. But I told him, "I go the one thing I have." is I'm gonna to wanna to operate some handheld shots. Now, the first day of shooting, 
when we went to the aquarium, there was the aquarium scene, that flashback. Um, I let Colin do the operating. But later I kind of said, okay, I'm gonna do the handheld because, and and not all the time, just when I feel like it, you mm -hmm. know, like, and so I- But is there an element though of, and I apologize to interrupt, but is there an element there of also like, as a director, there's something that's happening there that you need to feel and that you need to feel it in the sense of with the camera. Why, like why it. am I doing it? I mean, yeah. well- I mean, could, no something that could just be instinctive, but part of me feels as if just listening to you talk, that there's something also about, there's an element of of like executing like a feeling or a directing instinct through your head and yeah I mean I think there's certain things you can't um, I think it is because I came up as an operator and a cinematographer that there are things that you can't tell a person to do or maybe I just would rather not tell them to do I would rather just do it because I don't 100% I think the answer is really that I don't 100% know what I'm gonna do the whole time I'm in a handheld shot mm -hmm. And it's not because I don't have an idea of what I'm gonna do, it's because I like to go into it, leaving it open, because I wanna see what the actor does and therefore react off of them with the camera. So whenever I do a handheld shot, I basically, most nine times out of 10, sometimes I do commit, I'll just commit to somebody's close up and stay there. But like, a lot of times I won't, in a moment, if, it, if an actor's doing a certain thing, I'll move to a, a little bit this way or a little bit that way, or catch, you know, or maybe move around and get like a three-quarter shot from behind, but I just never know when I'm gonna wanna do that. And what I want is, I wanna have the option from a directorial standpoint to choose the moment when to move during the performance. And not all, every, most good operators know that, you know, you can't move, you don't wanna like do something, some kind of a change during while an actor's delivering a line or, you know, just the basic rules of operating. But it's hard to know about what you can get away with if you're not the director. And if you are directing and you're the one who's gonna be cutting it and you're the one telling the story, you can take more risks with the operating mm -hmm. because you know, because I'm me, so I know what I'm gonna be happy with and I'm not gonna be mad at me. Of course I look back mm -hmm. on like shots I've operated in my movies and in my, mm -hmm. I'm like, why didn't I stay on that thing? Why did I move, you know, like, mm -hmm. but like, you can't know all the time what you're gonna need in the edit, but I can say that like, an operator who is also directing will take more risks than an operator who's not the director. Unless you just say to the operator, go crazy, I'm not gonna be mad at anything you get, but you don't have that luxury of time in uh, on a TV schedule to allow the operator to have a few takes just for themselves to mm -hmm. like experiment and hopefully get something magical. So, you know, I think for me also, it is instinctive in the moment because it's a, it, the camera is another character in the scene and the camera is going to either a set, step back and let the actor do their thing. The best camera will just let the actor do their thing and will be not draw too much attention to itself. And so for me, that's why the handheld is so particular because that's the first type of camera movement that can draw too much attention to itself. And so I'm super picky. The mm -hmm. one thing I'm the most picky about is handheld. And I don't like, you know, I don't like a lot of other people's handheld and, and people might not like mine and that's fine but I like mine and so I trust me and that's why I do it. And now, but Colin is amazing and I didn't bother him about his lighting mm -hmm. and I didn't, you know, even though it was different than what I would have done, he also tried to really interpret what I wanted and so we, we talked a lot about it in advance. And you know, and I contributed as far as like, okay, what lens are we gonna shoot this on? I would say what lens and I would help with the composition and all that stuff. 
but I basically like you know I was like I'm gonna not bother you about this but that thing I need that thing you know you've been on the other side of this in the sense that uh, you you shot some episodes of, of vinyl mm -hmm. which uh, you know the the, the 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 original language of that show was established by Martin Scorsese and, and his, his great cinematographer Rodrigo mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> And so you come on to that with a, having been on the other side, like thinking of the people that had to, to adapt, I guess yeah. they, had, they at least had college, you know, uh, in the sense that there was that, that through line. Yeah. But you've been on that other side of like, of something like that. It, it, what, thinking, is that something that came into your mind or is that just not something like, I mean, in that executive producer role of like establishing something, I mean, what was that like coming on as a cinematographer with a show that had um, had established something so visually distinct? It was so scary. <laughs> but when I got the opportunity to interview for the job, I was like, there's no way I'm not going to go for it. Mm. And the thing that was really tricky about interviewing for Vinyl was that I couldn't see the pilot before I interviewed. <laughs> All I could do was read it. So I had to guess what Marty and Rodrigo did. And luckily, Marty and Rodrigo have done a lot of things together, so I had that to go on. But that didn't mean that what they were going to do here was going to be like what they did on, you know, like Wolf of Wall Street or whatever. Mm. Um, so I had to make a guess. I had to kind of go out on a limb. And I sort of went a little bit with my own instincts about like what I would have done if I was making a show. Are you talking about like in a room in an interview? Like how would you do this? Is I was in a, no, like how I would do the show, shoot the show if I was. Oh, you were just talking about like actually getting, I thought you were talking about the interview itself, but you were Well, the either. interview itself, I didn't know what to do. And mm -hmm. I was just like, I have to come in with a point of view. I have yeah. to come in with a lookbook. And having not seen the pilot at all, that was really scary because I could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So I referenced um, the photos of Philip Lorca de Corsia because I felt like he was kind of, the light was wild and the light was, the colors were aggressive and um, powerful and it just felt like rock and roll. And at that time, the pilot was called Rock and Roll because it didn't have a name and I knew that's what it was all about. And so I thought, okay, I'm just gonna go with my gut instinct here and then also like, early movies of Scorsese and just, you can't go, how could you go wrong with that, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so I, you know, went out on a limb. So that was scary. And then also trying to, so, so do even doing the interview for that job was scary because I was like, first of all, it's Scorsese and Rodrigo Prieto. Like how, who am I to come in and all of a sudden say, I'm going to make the rest of their show just as good as what they did, you and, know? And the other thing that I always, because I've, I've heard, you know, we both live in New York and I, I know people that work, you hear about their pilot and they're like exhaustive yeah. 35 days. And you're like, oh, Marty and Rodrigo had 35 days of exhaustive. Yeah. And like, I have like 10, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It's like, thanks guys, you know? It's yeah. Like this, uh, yeah, it was like, how are we going to make this pilot? That was like the first thing, like David Franco and I both got hired as the alternating DPs and I had to go first and I, you know, and it was just like, we were like, how the fuck are we going to make this look like that with all that coverage and all those angles? When we only have like 10 or 12 days and they had, like you said, 35 days, which is more than I've ever had on a feature. Yeah, their crew is about to, I mean, I heard this, like 18 hour days yeah. and like, I mean, know. it was crazy. So we were like, and of course I remember the first moment when we went to um, watch the pilot and see it for the first time and it was just like, at the end of the pilot, my jaw was on the floor and like tears were coming out of my eyes and it was like a combination of like, holy shit, I'm so excited to make this show. 
And then also like, holy shit, I'm so scared. I can't, don't know if I can make this show. Because there's a time element to TV. Even though, even though, for example, yeah. the one we're talking about is HBO, and HBO is, uh, my understanding is a little bit more. Um, they give you more time. They give you more time. A lot more. Yeah. They give you more time. But nonetheless, there is an element of TV, which is, is that you're moving quick and you got to make your days. You got to make your days. And yeah, exactly. And they're looking at the bigger picture. And especially if you're a DP shooting an entire season. Also, when you're alternating with another DP, it's sort of like you don't want to be the slow DP, you know? Mm. And to be fair, I think like uh, Franco and I kind of were simil exactly similar. So it was mm. never like a you know competition per se, um, even though we both are very different DPs. And, I, and all we did the whole time was look at each other's footage and be super jealous. And I was like, all I could think was like, I wish I was as good as David. And he was like, how can you teach me how to do this? I don't know what I'm doing. Like it was such a mutual admiration thing where we were just admiring each other's work. But anyway, um, TV, you know, what, what the hardest thing about making a TV show is that they, especially a TV show like Vinyl or a TV show like Handmaid's Tale, is that they're expecting um, movie level, like cinematic quality in every way on the show from the performances to the visuals and the shots especially like on a show where you're doing Scorsese style, you know, like mm -hmm. those shots are not simple, you know, like there's a lot of wild shots, there's cranes, there's, you know, like just crazy dolly moves, you're not saving time on a show like that. And you, you, so basically like it's an interesting being a cinematographer on a show like that, but also being a director is you're doing an artistic, you're making art, but you're making it on a clock and you have to do you have to get all these things and make them leap off the page 3,000 times better than they are in writing and and do it, and you've got to do it in 12 hours or less, you know? Mm -hmm. And you know, some days you have three, pa three and seven eighths pages, and other days you have, you know, nine pages. And that's, and then sometimes you have a scene where there's like eight characters in a room and you have to get all the coverage and that's really scary. And what's scary about being a DP on a show like that is that you, depending on the director that comes in, you're gonna have a different level of responsibility of things to do with each director and you never know what you're gonna get. You might get a director who wants to get every single eye line and you're like, fuck, it's gonna take us so much longer to shoot this conference room scene because- There's so many setups. There's so many setups. So then you have to think, okay, well how can I make three cameras work at once? As a, as a DP, that's like a nightmare because you know, each camera you add, you're making a sacrifice somewhere with lighting. Mm -hmm. So. That I got really good at doing multiple cameras on vinyl, but that was also like at a sack at a creative cost. Real quick, just returning back to handmaids. Um, so it's, it's it's an interesting thing because um, I guess technically it's the future. It's this future world. Um, like not, three years into the future. Yeah. I mean, but it's also this world in which is somewhere in that three years has has gone back to puritanical times and so there's like there's also these these references to um a, a sense of, of, of almost a past mm -hmm. and it's this I, i'm wondering what was your approach in terms of establishing that look with colin in terms of thinking about it's kind of an unusual approach to a period film right what was kind of the thinking about because you don't want the one thing about the present, which is, I get messed up, it's the present, but it's the flashback in the show, is that that is very naturalistic. It's very, I, I would associate it with a kind of like a, a traditional handheld um, 
indie film. Like mm -hmm. there's something very immediate and 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 kind of <coughs> alive in that, which is a contrast. And so, what what is that? What was that your sense when reading that of what you wanted that that Gilead world to look like and to feel like? Well. The only time I actually didn't want it to feel period because that was my fear with the costumes and everything. Like we, I pushed very hard as to to make sure all that the the uniforms in Gilead had modern elements to them, and so did Anne Crabtree, our costume designer. You know, adding zippers and things that, and also just like even the cut of the handmaid's dresses is not quite. It could have been way more um, sort of uh, period if we needed to, or right. puritanical. And, that, and that's kind of what I'm getting at, too, is, is that you don't go period, but you have to feel make it feel other. You have to make it's it It's other. Yeah. Yeah, so what we were, you know, what we were, what we were going to do that with was obviously color was going to do that right away. But the, the only time I actually did want the audience to feel like it was period was the very first shot of Offred sitting in the window in her room. Off that amazing visceral opening of an escape. Yeah. There, there, that, you, that you feel that contrast and you feel like that sense yeah. of something... So that I wanted that, passed. yeah, I wanted that to have like a period feel because I wanted the audience to be jarred and be confused and be like, where am I now? You mm -hmm. know, there was even a moment in time where I almost wanted to edit, do an edit where you start out with that shot and then you do quick flashes to mm -hmm. the the opening. But um, oh, but it, and that's it. Oh, I like it better this way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, well, there was like a there's a little more to it than that, but <laughs> but uh, you know, where you start out with just. You, where you don't see much, but you think you're in a period piece, and mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you go to this like modern crazy situation, but um, but it always worked better this way. And so, but you know, like I toyed with ideas of like how do I trick the audience? You know, like I liked the idea of at first the audience being kind of confused about what's happening for the people who haven't read The Handmaid's Tale, and um, because I always like it as an as a viewer when I'm playing catch up with the show because it keeps me on my toes and it makes me more interested and I want to keep watching to understand and find out and you know that's a fine line you don't want to do too much because then you make your audience frustrated but um, but anyway I really was pushing against anything looking too period because what I wanted so it was just like riding this fine line between what would they use or do or whatever with to, to, to return to a world of traditional values versus, um, you know, to sort of ensure that they could um, up the fertility, um, you know, the, up the, the rate of fertility. But, but at the same time, you know, for me, what's most shocking about the story is that it's like it could happen, and it does happen in other countries right now. So in order to, like, drive that point home, you know, it's like that's Islamic countries right now is what happens in Gilead. And if you go to sci-fi, if you go to other you're, you're, you have a disconnection to the fact that, I, that, that, that this is, there's something more immediate Exactly. About the other thing, too, is the disconnect happens if it's too period-seeming. Like, here, here's a perfect example. When we were, when I got there to start scouting, they were showing me a bunch of farmer's markets for loaves and fishes, which is where they go shopping in the grocery Who store. Who did you say there is up in Calgary? Is that where you guys were at Calgary? Toronto. Toronto, okay. Yeah, so they were showing me farmer's markets, and I was like, no, it can't be a farmer's market, because if you put the handmaids in a farmer's market, they look like they 
fucking belong there. Yeah. And that's not weird for an audience. That's going to shut the audience off and be like, I'm watching a period piece right now. No matter what, even if they know they're not subliminally. Because the audience wants feel, to contextualize that farmer's market in that sense of. of right. Like they feel right in a farmer's market. It's right. not disturbing enough. What's disturbing is seeing handmaids and guys with machine guns walking around in a regular supermarket with fluorescent lighting and the shelves as we know them and the registers and everything. <coughs> and like, you know, and there's no words on anything and all the labels are images and, you know, like that's disturbing. Not a farmer's market. Like that would have been too perfect. So that's an example of one of the things we did. But also just to get back to what you're saying about the opening being shot in a way that felt like immediate and you know that was the approach between between the sort of bigger picture um, look of Gilead versus the flashbacks was that the flashbacks are memories so everything was emotionally driven all the moves were emotionally driven so like the camera the decisions that I made to shoot things a certain way were all driven by emotion so the memories the flashbacks it's like they're going to be shot like fleeting memories. So the coverage wouldn't always be perfect. And I would purposely like go off of people when it was their line because, and, and you know, eventually get everything. But so that I would have the option to sort of cut it in a way where it's like something you're remembering and maybe you don't see every detail in mm-hmm. your memory. You remember the things you There's were focusing on. There's an elliptical sense and not as a grounded sense. Yeah, yeah. and also they're more impressionistic. And then the, the present day in the Gilead is more like you're in that moment and you're stuck in it. And I wanted the audience to feel stuck in it too. And so that was why there are a lot of like very um, strict sort of symmetrical framings that don't move and just hold there. And then. And you a know, very conscious, and I think what you're also kind of establishing is a very conscious limiting of what we see and what mm-hmm. that world is because there are certain things that could touch. If you start activating space outside of this and yeah. referencing, you don't feel that other, right? Right, and also you have to think about like, well, what can she? What is she allowed to look at? Yeah. Right. So, that kind of thing. So um, that was sort of the emotional reason behind that. But like, yeah, as far as it be feeling period or not, it wasn't really about camera-wise feeling period. It was more about production and design and costume design wise like regulating how much you know looked puritanical versus how much felt of now and three years from now you know um you just finished i think we're alone now um i believe uh, is that's that's you're going to be your next movie but mm-hmm. so is that you're editing that now with the hope of of i don't, know, I don't want to Push <laughs> yeah, you. Don't I don't want to push you, but I mean, is this something? Uh, is this something that you have? Is there is there a plan for this of like when that might be coming out into the world, or um, is, are you targeting? We're uh, we're editing it now, and mm-hmm. we're you know having hoping to have it ready for the top of 2018. So okay. whatever okay. that is, <laughs> maybe it will uh, have its debut somewhere in that vicinity. And is that something? Because you also there was also just this week an announcement that you're 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 doing this other project, which I guess is something you had been working on for a while um, with Jeff Bridges um, as a violinist um, who's faced with a with an illness. Uh, forget, uh, I sorry, I just butchered that. But um, <laughs> sorry for the screenwriter. Um, but uh, the um, is that now something? And I realize maybe it's not a switch. But going from Handmaids, making making a feature, lining up another feature, is is directing the thing now? Or is that is that when you yeah, wake up I in mean, a way? Is that <clears throat> it's pretty much is because it's like people 
you know, I, I, I can't help it because it's just like got this momentum. And mm -hmm. But also, if I didn't like it, I wouldn't keep doing it. So I never like to say, like, I'm never going to DP for someone else again because that's just not true. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I have certain directors that call me to do like commercials with them or, you know, um, music videos or that are great directors who are friends of mine who I respect highly. And like, if I'm in between jobs, I'm not too big for my britches. Like, I, like I can't, I can, I'm not too big to go and DP mm -hmm. for another great director. It's more just about like, how do I, what time do I have? But that's right. And even just the fact that you mentioned commercials and 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 things like that, I, what I sense is is that those big projects, that time that you want to put in, that's, yeah, that's on. I don't think I, yeah, like I don't have time to DP another person's feature at this point. Mm -hmm. Like that's just probably not going to happen. But because I don't. I do still love DPing. Like I DP'd, I think we're alone now, um, and I'm supposed to. You know, if we make this Jeff Bridges movie, um, I'm DPing that as well. Oh, you shot? I think we're alone now. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought Colin was up there with you guys again. Uh, is I wrong about that? Oh, because I got that wrong. No, actually, yeah, I, I Colin did not shoot it. Um, I shot it on my own. Um, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I just wanted to talk. Okay. My, you know what? My my Steadicam operator from Handmaid's Tale did come and do, I think, Rolo okay. now with All me. Because right. right. I needed another, op I wanted, needed two Oh, so cameras. you DP'd, that's a, is that the first time you've done that? Is that, that? No, that? I did, I DP'd in Operator Meadowland as oh, well. Oh, okay, of course. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. So I didn't, for me, that's actually a more natural thing than having a DP. But mm. I, because I just directed a bunch of TV and mm. I had DPs on that, I've realized actually how awesome it is having a DP because A, first of all, they're my peeps and like mm -hmm. I get their sense of humor and like I've pretty much all the things that I, all the DPs I've worked with where I've directed, it's been an amazing experience. Because I think they were probably worried at first, like, what's she gonna be like? Is she gonna be like a micromanager? And it was like, no, actually, I know your plight, so mm -hmm. I'm actually gonna be, let you do more, and like all the things DPs wanna do, and understand when you're frustrated, and not bother you when things are taking too long, and I see you're in like a lighting vortex or whatever. So, but anyway, it is easier having a DP, it is, but there is some other kind of thing that happens that makes it a little bit less stressful for me, even though I have to do more work when I'm DPing for myself. Well, the thing about a, a smaller film is that it's everything is already so falling on you. Right. It's, it, it goes faster oftentimes if it's just me doing it, because it's like, give me the camera, I'll just, make, I just do it. That's it. Uh -huh. You know? And, like, and also... Um, it's just more, it's immediate, as you were saying before, but also it's more like pure in a way. Um, because I do feel like if every director had all those tools in their tool bag and it was like a second, it just, it becomes a part, it becomes a, there becomes a point where the DPing is almost second. That part, you're doing it in your sleep kind of, because you've done it for so many years. You're actually only really paying attention to, I wouldn't do it if I let the DP part take over. And every movie, out of the two movies that I've done where I did both, there were there are like one or two scenes I remember from each movie where there was like something going on with the look, the lighting I wasn't happy with. and You were distracted. You could sense that you were distracted as a director. Yeah, not distracting me from directing. It was more like it was the setup was taking longer than I wanted because the other thing about me DPing for myself is I go very fast. I, de I set up real quick because I set up real fast because 
I want to get to the meet, which is, mm -hmm. so there's kind of a benefit of being the director being a DP where you know that the only person you're fucking over is yourself if you don't get this light ready and start shooting immediately. So I set up real fast. So the, those two, those couple moments that happened were just lighting setups that were just taking a long time because they weren't working. And that happens when you're DPing and you're not even directing and like DPs get have that, those moments and you're just like fuck and you have to like redo things so whenever that happens I just like abandon ship finally and I'm like when I realize it I'm like oh my god this is taking too long I just stop what I'm doing to shoot it mm -hmm. and it always works out but like you know you have to be pretty okay with like I moved into a different brain space of what I was going to perfect instead of when you're a DP and that's all you can control you need it to be perfect. But when you're directing, that's the, mo the, the story is the most important thing. And the cinematography, it's got to be good too. But like, I'm not going to worry so much about that because this is the money right here. Mm -hmm. And like, hopefully the cinematography is good too. You know? Last question. I, I don't really know how to phrase this. And I, I don't want to necessarily, we can answer this in context of The Handmaid's Tale or, or some fictional future project. Based on what you how you work as a director on your own personal films. And then that experience that you had on Handmaid's Tale, which I think, I think is unique in that, that hybrid sense. It's, is, there, is there a world in which you could imagine, you know, I know you did rewrites on your movies, but those were, written, those were stories written by other people. Those mm -hmm. were, there were scriptwriters on those. Could you imagine doing another television show in which you, saw it all the way through as a director. And obviously with TV, there are some structural things there that you have to deal with that's a little bit different than this movie that you, you just shot yourself. But could you imagine working the way that you work as a director and being the on, only director and seeing that way, seeing your way through that and treating it in that same way for that movie that you just shot? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean. You don't often get that opportunity in TV just because of the the time and money mm -hmm. because they want to shoot so quickly because already it's a huge schedule and so they have to sort of overlap preps and you know prepping episodes and that's why oftentimes directors don't get the opportunity that to that checkerboard of prep this one and go yeah the next yeah because like while I'm shooting an episode the next director's prepping their episode mm -hmm. so how could I prep the next episode if I was that director so that's usually what the issue is but yeah if it were and and I think there's other shows where they work that out like for example the first season of True Detective that Carrie Fukunaga did I believe yeah like they were able to you know they made that work so he was able to have his hand on every his you know stamp on mm -hmm. every episode which is pretty amazing and you can tell by how great how great that whole season is um, there is something to be said uh, for one vision and mm. following one vision through and I do think it's something that TV will catch up to at some point and, and realize like wow we're in the golden age of television right now but we can we've taken television to another level but now let's take it to an even higher level where it is one vision throughout a whole season mm -hmm. like a director might not want to stay beyond a whole season and a lot of directors are happy to go in and out and mm -hmm. also like it's great because episodic the good thing about having different directors come in and out is like it can liven things up and freshen things up and it's a new POV and sometimes it's really good but I do think there is something to be said for certain shows something like True Detective maybe even something like 
similar to Handmaid's Tale that is so personal. There would be something to be said for an entire season that's coming out of the mind of one person if, you, if people like that, mm-hmm. you know? It's, di- it's going to be different. Like, the episodes after mine, I'm sure, are great. I guess you were involved, so you you saw that. A little bit. A little bit. Um, But, you know, like, it's exciting to see what other people do and how they interpret Mm -hmm. things. So I would never want to take that experience away from everyone. But it would be, it would have been different, probably, if, if it were just one director the whole way through. So, yeah, I can see that happening. It's just a matter of like making it work. If it's a great enough story where you feel like you know the arc of the whole season and you want to tell it, it's like telling one huge long movie, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. It strikes me that the trick is, is that the stories have to be done. And, and that emphasis that goes on the writers, like it seems like right now Bruce is like talking about expanding the world and where he's going to go. And so there's certain things that like he needs to have you know, there's this sense yeah. of like how long this is going. So, so part of this is is about having the scripts done and and also the, uh, not necessarily build having needing a writer about how we're going to scope this and scale this out. But it feels to me like if if you got past that, the the only other real burden because I'm really trying to figure this out as I start to move into TV and start to looking at this and this kind of this conversation about the the two mediums. It feels to me like. The, one of the biggest things to also get past is is working in episodes, in that sense of like you didn't just shoot your movie scene one, scene two, scene three, right? And if you had a beach scene, you didn't go back to the beach four times. You went to the beach and you you, you shot all your. Be- it seems to me that like if you had those stories and you had that worked out as a director, if you if you could cross board it and treat it like you know something where you're not you're not playing catch up, but you're able to maximize that schedule right, and, right. and really and add your vision. It feels to me like that's kind of like those missing ingredients of, yeah. of like, am I, wrong? Am I far off? Or? Well, we did, and it's like, you know, we, we did, they, every director did blocks on the show. So like, you know, and I crossboard, we crossboarded two and three, so I shot mm-hmm. those together. So yeah, that's like the way you would do it. Um, so I think that that could easily happen. Um, you know, there is another thing, too, that, you, you know, I mean, I think it's it's within the realm of possibility. It just depends on who's making the show, who's in charge, and what kind of a vision do they want. Do they want this one person's vision mm-hmm. all the way throughout? If they liked what they got at the beginning and they want that energy all the way through, the chances are the, the person who created it, they are. it's coming from a personal place, so they're going to be able to source that more honestly. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but anyway, yeah, to go back to also something that you were saying earlier, but it just occurred to me, it was like that, the very first question you were asking about how is it different TV versus making a movie? And one of the most important things, and I'll keep this brief, but is that in the edit, in TV, you're more likely to see the, you're much more likely to see the episode closer to the script as written, only because in terms of the order of the scenes than you would in a movie, I think. Because, and here's why, and I've seen it because I've shot so many episodes of TV as well, but you don't have as many days to edit. You have like 10 to 12 weeks or even more to edit a feature, and you have like four days to edit an episode of TV. That's a huge difference. Like, So there may be way better um, 
sort of uh, arrangements of scenes in TV that you can't even explore because you have so little time to edit that you could have found that could be more emotionally powerful and take it to an even higher level and you don't get that opportunity in TV. In TV, you know, we, I mean, there's definitely like scenes we rearranged in like, for example, episode two and, you know, it, 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 we did some, a little bit of that, but you don't get the time to really explore that as you do on a feature. Once you do a feature, you know, you're doing it like in order, script order is assembly and then you go and you start taking it apart and then you start restructuring. Like you just, you know, at least for myself and my editor, Madeline Gavin, it's like we're never happy until we've tried everything. Madeline, Madeline just is editing the movie you just shot. She's editing, yeah, yeah she so edited so. Meadowlanded. She's editing, I think we're alone now. Mm. And it's like one thing that's so great is we're, you know, never satisfied. So even if it seems to be working in this order, we always ask that question of ourselves, but wait, this could go here and that mm. could go over here and we could go from this scene to this scene to this scene. And you don't get honestly in TV because of how you could probably do a lot of those things but you don't do them I feel like as often you don't do complete restructuring in TV also because there's a lot of people above you very very involved who are like no 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 no, no. you know like they would not that would be weird mm -hmm. and you don't you can't imagine a complete restructuring in four days which is how long we had to edit each episode of The Handmaid's Tale so anyway long story short I'm just going back to that because that's a huge difference actually in storytelling uh, Reed Morano, you've been very, very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Um, well, Handmaid's Tale is, is on TV. So, or no, I'm sorry, whatever, it's on Hulu. <laughs> and, um, and this new movie that just got announced with Jeff Bridges and Diane Lane, is this something you're gonna do soon? Because uh, I know you've been prepping it for a while. Possibly in October. Possibly in October. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>